Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from John 3, verses 1 through 17. Can be, they, can, they can be found on page 81 in your pew Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal Indeed, God did not send the man into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Let's pray. Lord, fill all of our lips with your words, all of our minds with your truth, and above all, all of our hearts with love for you and our neighbors. Amen. So two weeks ago, I told you all a story about uh, my brother Jack and my grandfather Jack and my uncle Jack. Uh, so th this week you get another Lily family story. And yes, there is a Jack involved in this story as well. In this case, it's an Uncle Jack story. Um, so the story goes something like this. Uh, my uncle Jack went off to college. And I won't say which college because there are at least two people who go to this church who went there, and I don't want to embarrass them or have you think anything less of their education. Um, so it's not about that. Uh, could have happened anywhere, I suppose. It's more a story about my Uncle Jack. So he goes off to college, and he comes home, and he's talking to my grandmother. And the thing you need to know about my grandmother is that she is uh, 
an exceptionally smart woman, uh, has an extensive vocabulary, um, and going, having a conversation her, with her is like going to class you know, in and of itself. Uh, so Uncle Jack's come home, and he's talking to, to Nini, as we call her, uh, about what he's been learning in class. And in the course of the conversation, he uses this word uh, that he pronounces as Zoderick. And Nini looks at him and says, Jack, what was, what was that word that you just said? I don't think I know that word. He said, well, it's Zoderick. What, what does that mean? Well, you know, it means something that's uh, sort of difficult to understand, and it takes expert knowledge to, to know about it. She said, Jack, do you mean esoteric? <laughs> and so Lilies to this day have told that story in homage to the education that my Uncle Jack was receiving at University X. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we say it like that now. And I have to watch myself very carefully because otherwise I will say the word esoteric and people will think that I'm as bad off as he is. Uh, you see, there's some things that only make sense when you know them in the context of a relationship. And it's like that with the lilies and esoteric. Uh, there was a man about 17 centuries ago who knew this very, very well, and his name was Athanasius. Now, Athanasius was the bishop of Alexandria for 47 years in the middle of the 300s, Alexandria in Egypt. And it's appropriate that we talk about him today as it is Trinity Sunday, the day when we celebrate the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the idea that we worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equally God, they're all equally eternal, all equally uncreated, but they're one God. Father, Son, and Spirit are, are one being together. Now, the church has worshipped that uh, and, and believed that since its very beginning. But Athanasius is famous for articulating that in the way that we understand it today. Uh, and, and his ideas are still with us. Many churches still say what's called the, the Athanasian Creed, though he didn't write that himself. Uh, now, Athanasius was opposed by a man named Arius. Uh, and Arius said that uh, Jesus, in particular, wasn't only uh, wasn't God himself, but he was only like God. And Arius said that there was a time when, uh, when the Son of God uh, did not yet exist. Now, theologians then, as now, like to argue, but this was no petty squabble. Athanasius knew that what Arius was saying didn't fit with the scriptures, and it didn't fit with the witness of the church up until that point, and he did everything in his power to call the church to recognize that Arius' teachings were false. And Athanasius was eventually successful, uh, but all did not go well for him at first. Uh, he was exiled five times by four different emperors. Uh, his enemies would come to nickname him the Black Dwarf, um, it, this idea that he's just a nefarious character. Uh, they would, uh, in fact, you know, even his, his allies would come to know him as Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Uh, he was a man who knew what it was like to stand up for what he knew to be right. Now, why was, why was Athanasius so insistent about this seemingly esoteric doctrine? Uh, did he just want to be right? Was he just insistent that I got this right and we have to have my theological way? No, I don't think that's the answer. The, the reason that Athanasius was so insistent about this teaching of the Trinity uh, was because he knew that getting the Trinity right meant getting God right. 
And, and, and that was important for our understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God. Uh, you see, the Father, Son, and Spirit in the Trinity are in an intimate fellowship and an intimate relationship. And if we miss out on that, we miss out on the fullness of what it means for us to relate to God. You know, if, if God is in his very being a relationship, and if we are then made in God's image, then it shouldn't surprise us that God wants to have a relationship with us. And it shouldn't surprise us that when we go astray from that relationship, that God acts to restore us to relationship with him. And that's exactly what we see in John 3, the well-known exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus which itself contains the most famous verse in the Bible, a verse that probably all of you know in some form or another. Now, as we meet Jesus and Nicodemus in this scene, uh, Nicodemus has come under the cover of darkness uh, to meet with Jesus. You see, Nicodemus is a powerful man. He's a Pharisee, a teacher, and a ruler, uh, yet he recognizes that something is going on with Jesus, and he wants to find out what he's about. In verse 2, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, as teacher, we, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Now, this is an astonishing confession from a person with Nicodemus's weight in the community. It has the power to change everything, his life and the life of his community and the life of the entire world as they know it. Uh, and it's, it's with that sense of momentousness that Nicodemus sneaks out at night to find out what Jesus is about. Now, Jesus' response to him is equally astounding. What he says is, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, that term, born from above, or born again, the Greek means either. It means both. Um, that should astound us, too. But our ears are often dull to it because we've heard it so many times. But perhaps by stepping into Nicodemus's world, we can start to see what that means. Now, for Nicodemus, this has a shocking meaning. He's put a lot of stock in his birth, in his original birth, his first birth. Being born in the right family can mean a lot in our world. And it certainly meant a lot in the world of the first century among a people who were expecting God to act among them in the way that he had acted among their ancestors. Jesus, though, is saying that God is doing something new. And that the way that Nicodemus thinks about human relationships isn't going to work in the new project that God's doing. No, we're not dealing with that old way of thinking about how humans relate to each other and relate to God. Uh, what's going on in this new thing that Jesus is proclaiming is that our relationships will be based on God's own relationship with himself. Now, Nicodemus asks, you know, how, how can this be? You know, it's, as well some of you might be. We all know that you can't go and simply be born again in a physical sense. And so here we come to a second amazing statement that Jesus makes here in verse 5. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. The spirit, he says, gives birth to spirit. So just to recap last week, we're going to have a little pop quiz uh, I taught you last week that this word for spirit is uh, actually can mean a couple of different things. Um, and we learned this in our Pentecost lesson. So one of the synonyms for spirit, for the Greek word for spirit, is what? Who remembers? David. Where's David Lehman? I know he knows. 
Say it loud. Wind. Wind, right? It can mean wind or it can mean breath. Uh, the idea here isn't this sort of non-physical spirit against the physical flesh. On the contrary, the idea is that here the Holy Spirit comes in, the spirit who is in relationship with the Father and the Son, and it shakes things up. It changes things around. It makes things how God wants them to be. We saw that exact message last week when we remembered the story of the Pentecost, when a violent wind came in and rested on the disciples, and they began, began to proclaim the words uh, and the, the lessons and the life of Jesus, uh, reordering those human relationships. We saw that exact same thing in the testimonies that Debbie and James offered last week. We saw what happens when this Holy Spirit comes in and reorders human relationships based on God. But Nicodemus, he still doesn't get it. Uh, and, and Jesus seems rather surprised with him. He says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't get this. So what does Jesus do? He gives him a story from Israel's past to explain what's going on. And that story is the story of Moses and the snake. Uh, it's a reference to Numbers 21. Now who, when they think about John 3.16, thinks about snakes? That's what I thought. Uh, <laughs> as I went back and read this, I, I realized too that I had glossed over that part so many times. We don't, like, we don't typically think about snakes when we think about John 3.16. Well, here's how this story goes. Uh, Israel is still on its way to the Promised Land. They're making their uh, journey out of Egypt. And as they often do, they get themselves into another predicament. Uh, they're, in, they're in the middle of the desert in the Negev, and they accuse God of abandoning them. They say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water. We detest this miserable food. They're sort of like petulant teenagers. No offense to any, no offense to any petulant teenagers that we might have here. Uh, I'm sure that you're all super proto-young adults who are perfectly mature all the time. Uh, Nicodemus, this, this story would have resonated with him. He's also feeling like he's, he's dying. He's there struggling for a people that are under occupation, that are waiting for God to act, that are wondering when God is finally going to do something about their situation. Well, in the case of the Israelites who were there in the Negev rebelling against God, God sends a consequence of their sin. These snakes, these poisonous snakes come among them. They bite people. People start to die. And they come back to Moses, the people, and they say, okay, we've sinned. Moses, go to God for us and get him to take away this punishment. Well, God does exactly that. He, or Moses does exactly that. He goes to God, and God tells him to craft this serpent out of bronze and to put it on a pole, and that anyone who is bitten who then looks at it will live. Moses does that, and the people who have been bitten by the snakes then live. And then they take that bronze serpent and they put it in the tabernacle as a reminder of God's relationship with Israel. Uh, so maybe this time they won't forget that God is in fact caring for them, that God is in fact in relationship with them. Now here's the kicker. Uh, Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up like that serpent, like that snake that Moses lifted up, and that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now what does this mean? Jesus is like a snake? Uh, I thought, you know, the snake is the problem, right? The snake is an agent and symbol of evil here in the number story and in Genesis as well, in Genesis, uh, the Genesis story of Adam and Eve. So it's obvious that Jesus isn't an agent of sin. But what could this mean? What, what it's saying is that on the cross, the consequences of sin, 
are taking their full force on Jesus. My sin and your sin and the sin of the world are being borne by him. All the manifold ways that we have betrayed God, uh, like those impatient children of Israel in the desert, Jesus is taking those upon himself, where we have failed to see our proper relationship with God. He is acting to restore that relationship, taking all of that burden. That's just like the mutual surrender of love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, God is then taking us into that love, shedding that love on us, even to the point of taking our sin and bearing it himself. And the result of this is that through Jesus we have eternal life. So pop quiz two, uh, we talked about eternal life a week ago or two weeks ago, um, and, and I told you that that means a little something different than some people might expect. It can be translated as, fill in the blank here, life of the, I'm counting on you, David. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> age. Yours is better, maybe, but life of the age. Life of the age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the, the idea here is that the rule and power of sin and death in this age is being broken. And God's new age is breaking in, an age that we can participate in even now. Uh, that's what it means for, for John to say that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life, life of God's new world, uh, yes, in the future, but also right now. And, and it's a life now that reflects the completeness and the love and the wholeness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are shared one with another. So the question that comes to us today is, do we have this? Do you have this kind of relationship? Do you have this understanding of God's love? Um, it's not an esoteric kind of understanding, right? It's not some knowledge that you just have out there. It's the kind of knowledge that shapes your life and reforms your life, like when that spirit blows in and rearranges things in the way that the Holy Spirit would have them. It's not something that comes of our power, not even of our choices by themselves. You know, rather, it's God's grace that reaches out to you and to all of us at every moment, you know, this moment included, as seen in the work of the Son and as seen in the work of the Spirit. Our friend Athanasius put it like this. He says that Jesus assumed humanity that we might become God. That's something to mull over for a second. You know, what he means there is not that we become, you know, like capital G, God, right? But what he means is that through Jesus' love for us, we come to have access to the mind of God. We come to bear God's image and reflect God's image as we were intended to in the beginning of creation. And that God, in his loving relationship, reaches out to us and then calls us to share that loving relationship with the world. Uh, and, and making us again in the image of the one um, that we're meant to be restored to. Though if you are on a journey in that relationship, or even if you've been neglecting that relationship, today's the day, in fact any day is the day, to take that up again to the power, to, through the power of Jesus and, and through belief in him to be born anew into, into God's new and coming world. And today we pray that it would be so by the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.